You're listening to A Quality Podcast with your hosts, John Thacker Jr. and Jake Harrell. I know early on because I had to monitor the actual deceit and affair activity. And early on, we were at 25, 30% of the patients that were admitted to the hospital, not patients that got COVID, but those that were admitted to the hospital died. And in one of our hospitals for a short period of time, every patient that was put on a ventilator had died. You know, I, I use that analogy of you go to the emergency room and you're having a heart attack. You, you don't really care about them working on your diet plan as why are you having a heart attack or what's causing that cardiac event. You just want to survive and be stable. Right. And then you go ahead and work on that plan after the fact. But that, I think that triggered me too. And then just seeing a lot of conversations around. And I just saw... Damon's Damon Baker and Mark Rabin's podcast on uh, lean focus. You know, Damon said a lot of lean practitioners they don't speak the language of CEOs, and I, I you say that all the time. Mm-hmm. Of what, and his point was clear. Well, what are you actually selling them? And how much your approach? If you're going there saying you suck as a CEO, I'm the lean sensei that's going to fix you. Oh, but I've never run a business before, but yet I'm going to go fix what you're feeling. Um, yeah, that's probably turning off a bunch of people out there. Why would I hire this asshole who thinks I suck instead of coming in and saying, hey, let me help you. I don't know everything about the business, but I have experience here. Let me just help you make it beneficial for your business and your team members along the way. Yeah. And welcome everybody to Equality Podcast. John Thacker Jr. here, your host, along with Nathan Corliss. Nathan, we're so glad you could join us today. Yeah, we've uh, talked a lot about sometimes the uh, person doing the selling when it comes to CI isn't aligned with, uh, you know, the the buyer. Um, but also, I think it's it's fair to ask, you know, what what have you done, right? As a if you're consulting, if you if you're here to help me. You know, I built my $100 million business. I'm the CEO, maybe the owner. You know, a lot of small businesses in the U.S. are still family businesses. Um, so why do, you, why do you think you can, can help me? Why should I listen to you? And if you don't have experience with that particular demographic, then, you know, maybe we should step back with a little humility. Um, and it, it goes both ways. It's not just hey, I don't have enough experience to help you. It's also sometimes comes from the other side. Like I've only helped GE. I've only helped these big companies. Well, that's a totally different ballgame. It's a completely different world. You know, a lot of my experience comes with large companies, you know, Bosch, Honeywell, Caterpillar. Um, so in, in those environments, you have like entire silos dedicated to engineering and continuous improvement. Well, you, you, I might not be equipped to help a montage shop, right? Now, I also have experience in that as well, but you get my point, right? So I think the, uh, the lack of alignment there 
is a challenge, you know, for, for some folks. Um, but I, I think just the content is too, you know, a lot of uh, folks that I talk to, they, they seem to have just stopped with the critical thinking and they have dogma, you know, it's like they went to seminary or something. They're like, let me colonize the heathens or something. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to teach you how you're supposed to think, what you're supposed to think and, you know, how to stay out of production hell or whatever. Um, when in fact, you know, having the ability to rapidly apply the right tool at the right time and sometimes simultaneously, you know, sometimes you have to address the right now problem and the long-term problem simultaneously, right? These are, these are all skills that I think have to be practiced. You can't read that in a book or, you know, watch somebody else do it once and, and have the skill there. Yeah. And for those listening, after you go and listen to all of the quality podcasts, uh, like I said, I just finished listening to uh, Damon Baker on Mark Raven's podcast, then go ahead and listen to that. He said a lot of the same things of, again, what are you selling? Are you pulling at the right time? And he, he brought up that point of, you go to a lot of these conferences now and lean conferences and workshop. It's just an echo chamber of the same practitioner saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, how many CEOs, what are they attending? What conferences are they attending? What are they learning from? Are they attending those same lean conferences and tool sets? And how do we how do we partner with them instead of be that, that separate piece of things? Continuing the last time I was on the show, I kind of related my little side venture of self-defense training and teaching to lean and kind of along the same lines too of what are you selling and what is the who is the audience that you're intending it for? You know, mm-hmm. even myself with you know lean continuous improvement, how I might talk with the executive team on where I'm working with now or when I was in healthcare and other businesses, then with the frontline people is different than when teaching self-defense. You know, I recently taught to a a group of young women who are going away their first year of college. Well, how do I make it relatable to them? You know, what's important for them? Um, And kind of side Side thing that gets on my nerves too is, you know, in the link community, the arguments between the terminology of where things come. And it'll relate to when I talk about, you know, instant command center work during COVID. I, I totally respect the lineage of lean TPS, you know, that's a lot of my initial training. I totally respect, you know, my judo background from the Kodokan over in Japan and the terminology. But the the people that I'm teaching, they don't need to know that. Or if you're focusing more on that terminology instead of what's important to them, that's how you have to connect it. You know, and you'll see the same arguments in the self-defense world. Oh, well, that's called a rear naked choke. No, that's Hadaka Jime from Japan. You can sense this out. I don't give a fuck. Is the person knocked out, laying unconscious, and you defended yourself properly by cutting off the blood flow to their head and you knocked them out? Who cares what you call it? Law enforcement doesn't care what you call it. So you might have to beep that part out of there, too. (laughs) Yeah, um, I I noticed a couple of things, right? So definitely um, there is this arrogance. I mean, I can't think of a politically correct word, but it's just arrogance that I see among some people where 
you know, they're, they're very concerned with their position, you know, hierarchically and, you know, their uh, pedigree, if you will. Um, and they prove their in-group status by using the right foreign words in the right context, et cetera. And it ties into the disconnect we were talking about earlier, because as someone who, you know, runs a, a pretty profitable factory as my W-2 job, I don't give a damn about any of that stuff. You know, I didn't get to the position that I'm in because I don't know how to run a factory. So if you're bringing stuff that can help me create more value for the consumption of less resources, great. Everything else is waste. And we've had this conversation on AQP before, you know, quite a bit of lean is waste. I'm learning Japanese words and, and that sort of thing and trying to teach it to some factory workers in Iowa. Um, what am I doing there, right? There, there's something wrong, particularly when the language we're talking about in Japan is extremely simple. You know, it almost has a Zen-like quality. They don't use jargon. You know, the, these words in Japan are intended to do away with that. So we have uh, some folks that don't really seem to be doing lean. They seem to be um, adopting a different philosophy while, you know, kind of using a certain kind of language and techniques. Um, and the other thing that I noticed, you know, we were talking about the pandemic in readiness. Um, a lot of health court organizations, including lean hospitals, uh, were not prepared for the pandemic. And I think there's a difference between uh, lean production and having an agile uh, type of business setup where you can pivot very quickly in the face of what I call three sigma events, right? So when I'm production planning, I plan for, you know, three sigma uh, deviation, right? All of our processes and machines and capacity can handle three standard deviations from the mean, right? After that, we have to get creative really quickly, right? And I think some of that creativity, um, it, you know, is is missing. And I think we saw some of that with uh, with the pandemic. It kind of revealed, of course, you don't have processes that can handle a global pandemic. You shouldn't, because if you did, then you wouldn't be able to function the rest of the time. You're too inefficient, right? It's like the uh, airplane that has enough fuel to fly to LA, but they're going from Boston to Providence, right? Well, just in case something happens, I need all this fuel. Well, if you flew a plane like that, you know, you'd go out of business, right? So of course there's limits to our processes, um, to what they can handle, but what happens when something breaks it? I was fortunate in my career that I worked in a lot of industries where that level of urgency existed just to the nature of the industry. I worked in defense manufacturing, and this was during right after 9-11 and when we went into Afghanistan, Iraq. So our equipment was shipping directly over to those war zones, and they needed them quickly. And of course, it was make sure that the product is safe, make sure the quality is there, but if something went wrong, it was very much, hey, we got to get this line up and running because we got to get these artillery fire control sites over so they can shoot these guns. You know, 
if they don't have their artillery working, our soldiers are at risk. I worked in, in food manufacturing and as part of my role was also business continuity, you know, FDA CFR codes say if you can't, if a disaster happens, you can't shut down the food supply chain. Therefore, you have to have your business continuity plan to hurry up and get back to operational stability. And then that really, I, I think just that mindset when transitioning into healthcare, and I was more of a, not an operational leader in healthcare, more of a, a just purely consultant role. And when the pandemic hit, my, my manager at the time, wonderful person to work for, she knew I had that experience in business continuity and said, hey, the, the healthcare system I was working for at our hospital was standing up FEMA structured incident command structures. And do you want to go help them? Yeah, absolutely. This is this would be great. And it was very much, and if anyone who's ever those who understand those command centers during emergencies and structures, it's very clear about common, simple language that everyone understands. And the the level of urgency of things have to be stood up quickly to be at some level of operational stability. So this is around March and April when the pandemic was really starting to hit. And we didn't have processes stood up for all these changes that were coming. You know, and I, you know, I use that example of, again, hey, I had that, that lean continuous improvement background, but if I went there, already you had just that environment. People were scared, people were nervous, people were worried of the uncertainty, already seeing the elevated levels of deaths. And when I spoke to ICU nurse managers, like this is things I've never seen before, just what's happening in the human body. I just, I don't know what to do with this. If I went in there using that formal lean terminology, they'd be like, I, we don't even understand this. It would just delay progress. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the one example I, I use as far as like urgency, the, the healthcare system said, hey, we have to go to universal masking on campus. And this was like six o'clock at night. We're about to shut down for the day. We get this message from the healthcare system that said, hey, we need to implement universal masking. You know, I reply with, well, when are we starting that? Tomorrow morning. Quite a few expletives went through my head. I said, all right, took a deep breath. All right, hey, we have to stay later. We have to get this system in place by tomorrow morning. And again, humans naturally want to go to the perfect solution. Uh, well, we can have this in place, this in place. I said, that's great. Can we get this done by tomorrow morning? No. Well, let's just focus on what's the immediate needs to be at least stable and to meet that minimum objective. We need masks at, we have what's already stood up that we can use, the screening stations. We were taking people's temperature before we let them on campus. Let's just use that existing structure. What do we need there for tomorrow? We just need to have a bunch of masks at the station. How many? Well, we don't really have any measurements. Do we have some any data that tells us how many people are coming through there? Well, it, it's not perfect data. It's good enough data. We'll use this to understand just the quantities. And we need to deliver some sort of messaging. So I didn't have time to type out a beautiful standard work document that said, here's your script and communicate. I, it was literally written, written on a napkin with my action plan on a whiteboard and just said, Go around to everyone and just talk to them. This is what's going to happen. Here's what's most likely the pushback from our team members. 
here's what you need to tell them. Here's the whys. And if it gets a little dicey, here's my number. I can go directly and tell them, or here's also security because we needed that from our, just from our staff and some patients who didn't want to do that. People visiting the campus because change happens so fast in that environment. And then it was, okay, we had a good enough process in place to at least be stable. It's not perfect. We'll go back and figure out the replenishment process and the right triggers so that make sure we don't run out. But from a, what was the most important thing? We had masks for our patients and our staff, the visitors. It's, we met the safety, we met the quality. Efficiency, not so good, but we're at least willing to accept that waste. And I think you, you just said it earlier, to me, what could be waste is also a complex process. You know, I could have forced the, well, wait a minute, no, we have to fill out this statement of work document to understand the hours and the time. Oh, we got to do our A3 and do all these steps. Like, that's, we don't have time for that. Like, we just had to move urgently. Again, is it, is it sustainable? No. Is it command and control structures sustainable? No. Uh, but that the needs and the urgency at the time is, is the way we had to kind of operate. Uh, right. Because again, right. that urgency was just there. Yeah, it's a it's a really good point, which is uh, process and methodology is always going to be relative to the conditions at hand, right? Uh, so I don't like using the word agile because um, that whole agile scrum thing, it's mostly in the software world, but um, I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about the ability to have agility or adaptability in an organization and among leadership, um, prioritize and execute, right? So there, there has to be some principles of operation that your stuff is hung on, right? And I have seen this sometimes, it's mostly with rookies, to be honest with you, not, not really the experienced folks I know, but they will confuse the tool with the framework it's hanging on, right? Um, great example is 5S. You know, folks will try to 5S an area or a factory or whatever. And first, they don't understand that 5S is just an, a, a tool for visual workplace management. If your business model doesn't value or can't capture visual workspace management, then your 5S efforts should just be replaced with a nice cleaning plan, right? Um, don't, don't go to all that trouble, just break out a broom. What are you actually trying to do? And the language is the piece that interfaces between the ideology of the person doing the continuous improvement or leading that and the business owner, right? And so that's where sometimes you'll have this language, right, this lean language, but the framework that it's hanging on in the mind of the practitioner and the framework that's in the mind of the business owner are completely mismatched. And I pick on 5S because it's one of the most commonly misunderstood where the business owner just thinks this is a method to make sure that my assets stay clean. You know, I'm, I'm tired of walking into a dirty factory. You know, I, I'm not going to buy another power tool. You know, you fuckers lost the last three. These things aren't free. 
You know, I need to buy stock in Ingersoll Rand. If I buy one more air drill, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm buying their grandkids' yachts over here. Um, but that's not what it is, right? The, the framework that it's hanging on. And so in a similar fashion, you know, you're describing a situation where action has to be taken and outcomes have to occur. And not only that, putting the effort into creating a, a sustainable long-term process for that is probably waste as well because things are changing so rapidly. You know, the first, you know, week one, WHO and CDC are aligned, and then week two, they're like this, and then week three, the companies are like, well, who do we listen to? And then the companies are setting up portals. You know, I've worked for a company that I won't name during the pandemic, and uh, they set up this like website for everybody in the company. And every day they're putting stuff in there like, well, take temperatures, you know, well, don't use a contact thermometer because we don't want to spread germs. And then, you know, the next week it's, well, you know, these non-contact thermometers aren't accurate. So people are going to take their own temperature at home, you know, and I think by week five, the website just said, you know, refer to CDC guidelines, <laughs> you know, um, and, and sometimes you're in situations like that and you can't, uh, you can't let like your ideology or your philosophy override common sense. Yeah, um, and especially in that environment too. And I, again, I was fortunate. The incident commander name is Jason Campbell. Just phenomenal talent in the emergency management world. Learned so much from him. And he and I, we clicked and aligned, particularly because we we're both Star Wars fans. But also that same principle of we we can't really invest in a very complex system now because it's it's rapidly changing. And so my role, if people are familiar with the FEMA structure, was uh, planning section chief. And I didn't follow all the true roles and responsibilities in there, but it was basically looking at what processes teams are coming up with and challenging. Are we going to go with this long term? Like, why are we going to invest in something that may not even be in place? Like, what is just good enough? Or plus, it's going to take so much time. Like, some of the hospitals put these very elaborate camera temperature taking systems Okay, is that going to be a standard for all of our 12 hospitals across the line? How much is it going to cost? But what do we, what can we do today to meet the needs for today? Uh, and I always use the example for any of those Marvel fans out there. Jake and I don't agree with this statement, um, but Philippe said, yeah, it is. Like, it really was that agile mindset. But like, I use the example of Iron Man. If people are familiar with Iron Man, when he was in the cave and he had to design his first suit, he didn't design his perfect suit. He just used what he had and just came up with good enough to escape. And then through continuous improvement, real world feedback iterations, he continually improved his suit. And I'm not a scrum master or anything like that, but to me, that's agile. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But oftentimes you find out if we put that perfect process in place first, you could be putting in a lot of features that you're never going to use. So what do we just need today to meet the needs. And then you might find out, oh, this great feature we talked about, we're never even gonna do it. Right. Now, some of the, some of the solutions <laughs> people didn't like me for because it became a permanent practice for over a two year period. So for example, we had challenges where, and, and I understand that environment was very emotional and the responses to the shutdowns was very traumatic to some people. 
you had salary cuts and furloughs. So team members were scared of getting sick and being sent home, and then they were going to get furloughed and potentially lose income. And I won't get into my opinions of healthcare executives who their decisions being made because that'll just go on a rant. I don't want to go on. Um, but we had team members who were bypassing stations because they knew they weren't feeling well, but they couldn't afford to be sent home. They were scared to have their salaries cut. So, okay, well, what can we do visual management wise to make sure they were screened? We do these little dots, little circle dots from Office Depot and they change color every day. So at least the leaders of the departments can see, hey, we know at least this person was screened. And we didn't let everyone know what the color was so that they couldn't cheat the system. Well, that became a permanent practice for God, almost two and a half years. And people were all, we hate this. You know, we have to manage to dust. Sorry, that was my idea, but it was the quick down and dirty. What can we do today to get it going uh, along those ways? Yeah, adaptability, agility. Um, so let me ask you some questions. You know, you're in healthcare in the pandemic, and it's, you know, rapidly becoming obvious that we're not set up to handle this. And, you know, a lot of the uh, public health decisions um, that were put out there were specifically designed to reduce hospitalizations, to keep hospitals from being overwhelmed. Uh, so, so it's a big deal, right? And I don't know, I don't know if you remember back, right? It's been a while, but at the very beginning, they were, like people thought that like twenty five percent of the population was going to be down for the count, right? Like some of the projections were really, really bad in the beginning. Um, so there's also some fear and panic and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, do you think that there are some things, structures, practices, philosophies that um, some of these healthcare organizations could have had in place to uh, minimize the impact? Or is this just one of those, hey, sometimes, you know, once a century or whatever, the shit just hits the fan? I was a little surprised personally, again, coming from manufacturing and having that business continuity where we had to have plans and playbooks in place that there were a lot of the beliefs and not just the healthcare network we worked at, but you know, across the nation. Oh, we didn't really had to put much investment into preparing for this. And I was a little shocked going, what is the one industry that during a mass casualty event uh, or pandemic is going to be hit the hardest, and that was healthcare. We right. we didn't have plans for um, universal masking. And to be fair, a lot of things again was still learning. I think for them too. So I don't want to I don't want to dog that industry too terribly bad. Uh, but there were things that I thought should have been in place that weren't. So we had to do it in the fly. And I think maybe we'll learn from that. And we're still, I think, seeing the impacts of just the supply chain disruption as a whole. Everyone, I think, can talk and relate about that. Um, you know, even, you know, the mass casualty plan, like my first project when getting the command center was I had to help set up the decedent affairs trailers on campus. We had two on my campus and one at another hospital. And this is before the shutdown. So the projection data was about, uh, like you said, I, I saw what they were projecting the number of deaths were going to occur. I mean, that hurt, that hit me at first. I'm, I'm in the room with our, 
our ODA, our Office of Decedent Affairs Director, and we're filling out the process, what's the flow, what's the, the potential tack time needed based on funeral home pickup time. And I paused and go, son of a bitch, there's a lot of people that are gonna die based on these projections. And they're using you know, what happened in, in New York and Italy. And we basically set up our goal, our poor man's A3 on a whiteboard. Our goal is to just have that never event. And that never event was, we will never have any of our bodies out in a parking lot somewhere where people could see them like you were seeing in other countries. So what is that right capacity standpoint of, of you know, what's our true throughput and just used all those, you know, operational setup lean tools of having the right amount of morgue space inventory, but not having like 10 trailers on campus, we know we didn't need it. And this is the one time I thought, I, I hope my work is never used. And then the shutdowns happened. And it's even, and people even say in continuous proven quality, it's hard to prove a preventative. Did those shutdowns really, we didn't see the number of deaths that were projected, thankfully. Was it driven from the shutdowns? Maybe. Was the severity just, we didn't predict right? Maybe. I don't really know. I know early on because I had to monitor the actual decedent affair activity. And early on, we were at 25, 30% of the patients that were admitted to the hospital, not patients that got COVID, but those that were admitted to the hospital died. And in one of our hospitals for a short period of time, every patient that was put on a ventilator had died. Now, in that particular hospital, the health disparities, the chronic conditions, the uh, respiratory issues in that region were well known. So yes, that had a contributor to things. Uh, I know I kind of pivoted on you, but to, to kind of tie it back to your question, there was a lot of things that they just weren't prepared for and didn't know were gonna happen and, and was constantly adjusting on the fly. And I, I understand why it was so polarizing for those who might not have worked in that industry. And even for those that were in the industry, but weren't seeing firsthand that information because not all nurses are the same. An ICU nurse is seeing things that maybe a, a nurse in an outpatient clinic weren't seeing. Um, so things were always changing and I don't, I think some of it was fear driven without really having that plan. I, I don't really know what that, that right answer is other than just maybe the last time there was a pandemic, what, 1912, 1915, the, the, the flu, and you don't have the social media impact and information sharing that we had, didn't have back then which I think some of that might have, as it got politicized, kind of driv, driven some of the decisions and whatnot. And just like that, a quality podcast became a quality political podcast. Thank you, Nathan, <laughs> for taking us down that path. Oh, <laughs> yeah. And, and then trying <laughs> so, to step back and be fair, I, like, I totally understood where people who didn't see it were coming from because the information from their lens was very inconsistent. And even in our own region, the, the the pockets of how people were getting sick. People just like 10 miles north of us in our county, in our city, were getting sicker than, say, a hospital that was just a few miles to the west. 
Right. And you can go into health disparities and some of those other reasons there, but like people that were South where it wasn't impacting. So I totally understood from both lens why I was being political, but I will say even the media was using information. Oh, the, the EDs are being overflown and are overgrown and with people that are sick and the hospitals are being totally overrun and I'm looking going well no we still have capacity here we have a plan to improve that so we're not in a dire situation at this moment but the media is saying something different well that was before all those uh, ivermectin patients came in poisoning themselves with horse dewormer so um <laughs> all right having contributed to the general stupidity of humanity I'm going to pivot real fast so yeah so um maybe there were some things you know, that we can do going forward that weren't in place to help in a situation like this. I remember I took an um, emergency response and preparedness course in my MBA, very uh, uh, beneficial class. And I remembered previously I had worked for Walmart Logistics and we were in the Houston area. Of course, that's Hurricane Alley. And uh, we had an emergency response plan in place, you know, a old-fashioned three-ring binder, and part of that plan included putting tape decks in a suitcase and taking them physically off-site, you know, I, I, I think everything's in the cloud nowadays, but, um, you know, that was part of it, um, and the headquarters for emergency management in our plan were in a, you know, different latitude and longitude to where they were very unlikely to experience the same events, different weather, you know, outside of a nuclear blast radius, you know, all of that. Um, so they they had a contingency plan in place. And, you know, it was super important because we uh, delivered goods to, I think, 60-something Walmart super centers, right? So if there is an emergency, everyone's going to Walmart. And for Walmart to sell stuff, they have to have stuff, which means they have to have a regional DC to get it there, right? So... I was recalling some of that as I went through class and it helped me grasp, you know, what, what was going on, what was being taught. Um, and one of the things that we covered was, you know, you don't have to plan for specific events, but you should know your highest risks and then you just have a plan, right? So for example, if you're Amazon web services, right? One of the big events, that can cause you great harm is an incursion, right? Hackers, um, what do they call that? Anonymous. You know, anonymous is like, fuck you, Jeff Bezos. We're going to go in and tear your shit apart, right? So they get into the, the web hosting and, and they're going to attack, right? So there should be an awareness that this is a kind of thing that can cause us great harm, right? Another thing might be uh, some kind of massive power outage, you know, something like that. Although, you know, at that point, uh, you might have a lot bigger issues than keeping your web server up. Um, so those were some of the things that, that we learned, as well as, you know, it really helps if you have an emergency management coordinator, you know, that can take command in these situations, who's trained in how to do this. Um, we always had a third party uh, commander that was kind of like on retainer. You know, it's, it's, it's very affordable. For, for companies that want to do this, um, but they typically are uh, somewhat local, and you know they know like the FBI 
field director's office number. You know, they're friends with the chief of police, you know, all of this stuff. They have the, um, the right connections and they know how to manage media as well, you know, depending on your um, site and, and industry. Um, I read a story last week about uh, some janitorial service at a GM plant. And I guess one of them killed one of the other ones, like in the factory. You know, what do you do when the press shows up? Right. Um, well, if you're GM, you have a protocol for that, right? Because you're GM. But stuff like that can happen to a lot of smaller companies too. Um, and, yeah. and you might not have a, have a plan for that. And next thing you know, you know, you're on the front page saying something really dumb because that's, that's what, that's what journalists do. Sorry, all you journalists out there. I love you. Um, I'm not picking on you, uh, but a lot of your content sucks. Um, so yeah, in, in the healthcare, I think a lot of industries, right. Uh, there was just, there was a, a lack of agility that was kind of revealed by the pandemic. Right. Um, and in healthcare, it was, I think, compounded, exacerbated, or made more obvious by the fact that, you know, it's uh, affecting your throughput, basically, right? You're uh, adding patients into the system faster than you can discharge them, right? That's a problem. But for everybody else, you know, you still had masking mandates, um, curfews, you know, all kinds of weird stuff, just depending on you know, what state or or region you were in, um, and uh, maybe maybe a lack of framework and agility to to deal with this kind of thing. Yeah, um, you know, even though I kind of bashed them a little bit at the beginning, I, again, I was surprised that they didn't have a lot of these plans in place. But then I also kind of related back to you know the self defense training world that violence is chaotic there's no script and what we saw with the pandemic crisis there's no script either there might be some commonalities and similarities and uh gentlemen i you know had the honor of training with randy king cheap plug 8020 conflict management he always uses the phrase violence is high-speed problem solving and crisis was high-speed problem solving and it's difficult in that emotional environment where, you know, I'm trying to collaborate with some nurses and team members who are also scared for their own well-being. I don't want to go home and, you know, get my family sick. I knew of a physician who had a trailer outside of her home or a camper outside of home. And she, she lived there because she was in the ED with all the time. But it's that high-speed problem solving. Can you at least utilize my facilitator school skills and just understand, hey, people are scared, let them talk. Okay, how do we get back to just uh, a minimal plan for today? And it's okay to accept some of those operational waste as long as everyone's safe and the quality is good. You know, just make that decision. We're not gonna worry about efficiency today. We're just gonna focus on this. And, you know, maybe is, is that what other businesses did too? of what drew me to one of the, the businesses I'm, I'm working for now went back to manufacturing and it was a business I've known for several years so known their culture and when I was interviewing with them you know I asked the question did you have to lay off any of your team members and they said no one of their core values are take care of each other 
and they just took the financial hit and didn't lay people off and kept people working. Mm-hmm. To me, I valued that because after having my salary cut and seeing some of my colleagues get furloughed, you know, I valued what they did um, along those ways. So they made that conscious decision to keep, take care of their team members and the safety of their well-beings than they did financials. And so any, any business that was impacted, and it get, I, I talked like it's easy, but it wasn't. You know, how many businesses truly struggled and suffered of just having to make those decisions of what are you willing to accept waste-wise to keep yourself afloat? Right. You know, how many businesses you see restaurants who the ones that survived may have adapted to, you know, pickup ordering and, you know, drive-through type of delivery services. And then you look at just supply chain now, it's like that ripple effect, the pandemic in 2020 now we're still seeing those waves from supply chain disruptions and yeah. inflation and all the other things. And I'm not going to go back to getting political again is what drove those. But, um, you know, like people now dog just in time was did that process fail or did we just have something so unique oh. and chaotic and crisis, you know, in, in self-defense, you can do everything right and still lose. Right. You could still right. get injured. And yeah. that's not your fault. That's just the, the nature of chaos. But did you survive? You know, maybe you have a limp or maybe you're going to have some trauma that you're going to have to work through and that's okay, but you're still surviving and working through there. Um, so it, it's yeah, going to be interesting. I think 10 years from now, we reflect back of what happened what did we learn? And did, did we actually learn and put some mitigation steps in place that hope us, hopefully never, but if there's another event, I don't know. Yeah, somebody's going to be selling some case studies for sure. Uh, yeah, I think we talked about uh, last time, maybe, you know, I wrestled in college. And yeah, like you can do your absolute best and still get your ass kicked. You know, mm-hmm. it happens. Uh, that's one of the reasons I like um, athletics for teaching people how to work as a team and just deal with life in general, right? Um, although wrestling is more of an individual sport. Um, but, uh, you know, you touched on a couple of uh, good things there, right, that go back to uh, how we are able to adapt and overcome. Uh, you mentioned one company turned back to their values, right? If you have a value system, uh, it can help in situations like this, right? And, and I guess I should maybe clarify that values outside of like making money. Right. If, if you're because that, that is a, a values system. Right. But if, if your value is, you know, meeting your hurdle rate or net profitability or, you know, EBITDA or something like that, then you're going to make decisions on the basis of, of your finances. And, you know, in a crisis situation, that goes back to, you know, the Sigma modeling we were talking about. Right. If you're here in a Six Sigma event and you change what you're doing on the basis of that you know, with anything that has lasting repercussions or consequences, you're in trouble because it's a Six Sigma event. It's coming back here, you know, pretty soon. Um, and, and having strong values can help when it comes time to make decisions. You know, I, I know of a company that uh, during the pandemic, they fired their vice president of quality. Now, I've 
I knew about it. I wasn't working for them. I was just aware, uh, which means a lot of other people were because I'm general public. You know, this is an insider knowledge. Can you imagine trying to sell for that company? Hey, you want to do business with us? We just fired our vice president of quality, right? Um, there was a, a lot of staff cuts uh, that happened. Uh, I think it's a pretty bad signal to your customer base if, if that's the job, right? It's extraneous. <laughs> quality doesn't matter. Get rid of them. Um, but, you know, that I don't think that uh, decision was guided by an internal set of values or at least values that I would value, right? Um, so I think two contrasting stories there, you know, yours, hey, we're going to do everything we can to keep these families on, right? And look out for each other. It, this too shall pass, right? That too, Brute. And then over here, well, let's cut some high salary jobs. You know, no, we don't really care about quality anyway. Um, two different approaches. Uh, the other thing, though, that, that you mentioned was pretty interesting. You know, you were talking about efficiency, right? And in crisis situations, uh, your decision-making matrix isn't or shouldn't be guided by efficiency. Um, I worked for a couple of truly lean plants, right? And what they had in common was uh, they, they didn't care about efficiency, right? They did. They measured it. But that was a trailing metric. By the time it tells you you're inefficient, you're already dead, right? What they cared about was the process because they knew that if the process was running and was stable, you were going to get a certain level of efficiency, which they all agreed was okay for now, right? Um, in the same way, you know, you're talking specifically about uh, the healthcare industry that you were involved in during this crisis, uh, but for other industries as well, when something like this uh, happens, if you already have processes in place to execute that get you where you need to go, it's easier to deal with because all you have to do is stay as close to those processes as you can. And there's things you're going to have to add in, and there might be some things you have to drop to make that happen. Right? If you're spending time running around making sure everyone has uh, masks, you're not running around making sure everyone has towels. Right. Um, so if you have engineered processes that get you the outcomes you want, then you, you sort of have the bandwidth as leaders to adapt and overcome. But if you run your business by the seat of your pants every day to maximize efficiency, right, then your, your uh, leadership team lacks a baseline to say, well, if I just execute these processes, I'm getting a stable outcome at a certain you know, measurable efficiency. Um, so having that kind of stability helps when instability is introduced. But if you're already in a chaotic situation, you know, it's, it compounds really rapidly. It, it, I got a couple of points that you brought up that I can touch on. You know, even in self-defense world, shit hits the fan, everyone freezes. I don't care who says what? Everyone freezes. There's different levels of freezing. Law enforcement freezes. Military personnel freezes. And they see more than I'll ever see. It's your training and that repetition or at least ex constant experience in how to manage that situation will hopefully help you break that freeze. And not everyone breaks the freeze. Uh, you go through different 
levels of freezing. And I think that's maybe you can relate it back to what happened in the pandemic is businesses froze. Oh my, what the French toast just occurred here. And then hopefully you, okay, wait a minute, we have some processes in place, let's follow this. Or even if we don't have a structure in place to address this, we have processes to develop, implement, and change. And then you started kind of mentioning along the ways of, you know, if you're flying by the seat of your pants. And I'm seeing a lot of conversation on LinkedIn today about KPIs and metrics. And uh, one of my colleagues who I work with in healthcare, uh, Matt Lauer, he would always say, KPIs aren't the goal. They're just the results of the behaviors that you put in there. Because I can make my metrics green, but I can decimate the business in the process of doing so. Right. It's like you said, and that's, again, that's a lagging indicator, but what are the processes we're following? What's the behaviors we're really doing? And the, the KPIs will just show that result of that behavior, but you always got to reflect back. Well, what did we do to achieve that? Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to lose weight, I could eat properly. I can hydrate. I'm still drinking my whiskey anyway. Um, exercise, or I can just starve myself and do a bunch of drugs and I can lose weight. Well, which one's healthier? Right. And I think you were touching on that of having those those good processes of behavior and then really establishing what behaviors we want to occur and build your processes around that and your KPI should reflect. Yeah, Def. Um, I, I kind of ignore all that crap because we go in these cycles now that we have social media and uh, constant attention and I can get it as an individual, you know, as opposed to a, a large media network. Um, we just go in these cycles of people trying to get attention. And the best way to get attention, given the current algorithms in, in social media, is to tear something established out, right? That, that's just the best way to get attention. You guys have heard of uh, whatever, Simon Sinek or whatever. Well, he's full of shit. Let me tell you what. That's a bad example because he kind of is. But anyway, uh, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, nine reasons why he's wrong, you know, and people are clicking on the name, and, you know, so I kind of ignore all that crap, but uh, KPIs kind of get a, gets on my nerves when uh, people attack that, right? It's, it's a key performance indicator. That's what it stands for. Maybe we should sound it out instead of saying the initials. I don't know, um, but that's what it is. It's key as in it's relevant. For example, one of my physiological performance indicators is the length of my toenails because it's directly related to nutrient intake mm -hmm. keratonin vitamin b whatever i don't know but it's related to stuff right your your hair and your toenails grow faster when you're getting the right nutrients is it key no it's not i'm not going to measure it right um what i might measure is how quickly i get tired when i'm running Right. Okay. That's a key performance indicator. And it's an indicator. It doesn't tell me anything except whatever I'm doing, this is the outcome I'm getting. That's all it tells you. Right. Um, and so it's a high level um, method to understand if your current process execution is getting you what you want. And of course, it should be mapped over time because you want to see how you're trending, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, good, good points. Um, we are starting to run out of time. So why don't we pivot really fast and make fun of Jake for a little bit. So he wasn't able to be here today. <laughs> so oh, this is our perfect Jake, opportunity. I, 
Jake, I first see. First of all, no, you go first. I really like Jake. I can't wait to meet him in person. Um, potentially, you know, we have a plant in Dallas that we visit, and I wasn't able to visit him back then. But uh, he's definitely uh, stirring the pot out there. I see him on people's posts and bringing some thought-provoking trolling, I think, in, involved in there. Um, I'm like, ooh, that's actually funny, but I don't want to react to that because... <laughs> right, right. High speed. Might be pushing people. Well, so we have this game. What I do is I'll go on LinkedIn and I will click on somebody's post and respond with a very honest comment. And then I'll take a screenshot and send it to Jake, but then I'll just delete the comment. <laughs> right. So we, we do that. We do that back and forth. But uh, what I want to know, how is it not a joke that Jake is director of lean transformation for a company called Quality Sausage Company? I just feel like that is so fitting for the Jake brand, you know? Oh, totally, totally. And maybe part of it was I just joined the business I'm with. I'm only there for four months now, and I don't want to, I'm very visible to people that work there and don't want to advertise myself too quickly. Um, but, oh, yeah, there's there's plenty of jokes that can be made about that. Like when he first well, got that role, I'm like, is this is this a real company? Right, <laughs> right. Did this happen for real, or is uh, is this a Jake? Is yeah. Well, what's interesting, um, Jake was having a, a convo with somebody, and um, they asked about a couple of kind of older posts of his or whatever, and he was like, "Wow, you know, like I guess I didn't put two and two together, like." People have this uh, idea of me based on, you know, my social media presence or whatever. I forgot about that whole topic. And by the way, I've changed my mind since I wrote that post, you know. Um, but this person said, hey, don't stop. You know, like, this is a great contribution uh, just to the world. Um, it's part of your personal brand, right? So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, no, that's true. But he does try to lick double A batteries. I've tried to explain to him. He's not very good with, with sciences. Uh, so. <laughs> oh yeah. Maybe when we all get down there to Dallas, he can, uh, we can have a big barbecue of his quality sausages. Oh, definitely. Well, he just, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. I'm going to say it. Um, he just bought a place in Arlington. Um, I think he closed on it last week. He just bought what? A home, a house. Oh, nice. Yeah, um, has a pool. Um, does not have a fire pit yet. I'm wrapping mine up right now. I'm waiting for the refractory uh, cement to seal right now. But uh, I sent him a pick and he was like, you're totally building mine. So I'm gonna have to plan a flight out to Dallas to build him a nice uh, fire pit and then, uh, Hey man, pool party. Nice. Pool and quality sausages. <laughs> well, Jake, if you're listening to this, which you're probably not because you're a deadbeat, um, we love you most of the time. Sometimes we don't. And uh, you're a jackass for not joining us today. So there you go. Right. <laughs> cool. Thanks for uh, letting me come and vent a little bit and talk about my experience in, in crisis management. Yeah, fantastic, Nathan. We're really happy to have you back on the show and talk about something that 
you know, I think is applicable to most of our audience, but also I think we just want to hear like, what was it like for somebody that was in the trenches, you know? Uh, so thanks for coming on and sharing that with us. Um, for those of us out in the audience that want to get in touch with you, what's what's the best way to get in touch with Nathan Corliss? Um, well, as my boss called me, a prolific networker on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so always welcome to connect there. Uh, if you're interested in my self-defense work, you can find my company, Aegis Self-Defense, there on LinkedIn, um, Facebook, Instagram, all those other socials. Don't do TikTok yet or any videos yet. My partner and I, have, if you ever get on there, you'll find like, you'll post some good content and there'll be a hundred people on there saying why it's the wrong way. Hey, kind of sounds like some of those new <laughs> posts out there. So I don't care how, how you do it as long as it works for you. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, Nathan Corliss, thanks as always for joining us on Equality Podcast. Goodbye.